0: Escaped Sapiens. Xenobots blur the lines between what is alive and what is a machine. They're tiny synthetic organisms constructed from different living tissues and automatically designed by computers to perform desired tasks. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with one of the inventors, Professor Josh Bongart. We discuss their development, their potential applications, and the moral and philosophical implications of their creation. The current generation of xenobots are very simple, built using only muscle cells, skin cells, and cilia. But as newer generations with senses, neurons, and other elements are developed, they open the door to potentially answering some of our deepest open questions. What is life? What is the nature of intelligence and consciousness? And can general artificial intelligence exist without embodiment? This conversation really tweaked my imagination. I hope it does the same for you. Enjoy. Josh Bongard, welcome on the podcast. Thank you, Shane. Happy to be here. I think we should start really uh, basic and and low level. What, What are Xenobots?
1: Good question. Uh, What are xenobots? We're still asking ourselves that question. Um, For those that are just tuning in, uh, the xenobots are about millimeter-sized biological robots um, that I've been working on together with uh, three other team members, uh, Michael Levin, uh, a biologist at Tufts University, uh, and Doug Blackiston, also at Tufts, and my postdoc, uh, Sam Kriegman, here at the University of Vermont. The four of us, about a year and a half ago, published a paper demonstrating or introducing these uh, xenobots, uh, which, as I mentioned, are about a millimeter across, Um, so they're barely visible to the human eye. They are robots in the sense that they've been designed to do something uh, that we want them to do, which at the moment is something pretty simple. It's just to walk along the bottom of a Petri dish. But the twist in all of this is that these tiny robots are not made out of metal and ceramics and electronics and sensors and motors like you'd expect a robot to be made out of. They're made out of 100% frog cells.
0: <laughs> so where did the name come from then? So the
1: name Xeno, uh, Xenobot uh, actually has two derivations. The first one is we, uh, we drew the uh, cells from the frog Xenopus laevis, the African clawed frog, so thus Zeno. Um, but Zeno, uh, in Greek, also means sort of stranger or strange or newcomer, which seemed like a good fitting name for these uh, new kinds of machines.
0: Where did where did it come from? Who who had the original idea? Where, where did this actually start? I mean, before writing the paper, what was the inception?
1: Sure, that's, that's a great question. So, you know, like everything in science, ideas don't sort of come out of nowhere. Uh, they come about through circumstance and luck and, and then a lot of hard work and effort. Um, so I mentioned my colleague, Michael Levin, uh, he's doing some amazing work in developmental biology. Um, among other things, he demonstrated uh, a couple of years ago that you could take uh, the eye from an adult frog and you could graft it into the tail of a tadpole, so a baby frog. Not only would this not bother the tadpole, but as the tadpole grew from a tadpole into a frog, the eye sitting on the tail would gradually connect neurally with the growing notochord or the spinal cord uh, of this developing frog. And the resulting adult frog was perfectly happy to have this third eye on its back and could actually use it for seeking out prey. It's an amazing experiment in and of itself. We probably don't have time to talk about the implications of just that experiment, but it does demonstrate something that's kind of surprising about uh, about organisms, which is that they're very um, they're very willing to be rearranged and accommodating of things, surprising things out there in the world. And in this case, surprising things that happen to their own body. So this is an idea sometimes known as developmental plasticity. You can push and pull an organism as it's developing into something completely new. This is pretty pretty common in plants. Obviously, depending on where you plant uh, uh, something in your garden, it will grow towards the light. It's being influenced by the environment. But it wasn't always so obvious that that happens with animals, uh, including us. It kind of feels like we have a set body plan and we grow into it over time. So coming back to the xenobots, I've known about Mike's work on developmental plasticity for a long time, and I'm a roboticist. I've worked with robots for a long time, and we've tried to make our robots similarly accommodating, that they're able to adapt and recover if they lose a leg or they move from flat ground into a cluttered environment. Uh, Traditional robots aren't very good at that yet compared to organisms, but we're getting there. And Mike and I have been talking on and off over the years about wouldn't it be cool if we could do something together, but we hadn't formally worked together before. Mm -hmm. Then about uh, three years ago, uh, DARPA, which is the research wing of the Department of Defense here in the US, uh, launched a new program called Lifelong Learning Machines. So DARPA Mm -hmm. and a lot of other people are interested in making autonomous machines that can continuously adapt in the Mm -hmm. field as they go. And so uh, Mike and I were funded together under this program. So we finally had some funding about three years ago to really start working on something together. And then the real hard part started, which is what are we going to actually do? How are we going to take what Mike knows about developmental plasticity and channel that into machines that can learn throughout their lifetime? So we started having weekly Zoom calls and trying to figure things out. And, and at the beginning, it was sort of you know, matchmaking. We were sort of showing each other what we could do, what's easy, what's hard in terms of robotics, what's easy and hard in terms of the biology that Mike was interested in. One week, we showed our robots, which are these, uh, uh, at that point, they were simulated. They existed in a virtual environment. And there's soft robots, They're sort of these floppy things that roll and crawl and pull themselves along the ground. And on the call that week was Doug Blackiston, a member of Mike's team. And Doug is a microsurgeon. He can uh, look through the microscope, and with micro tools, almost cell by cell, he can build up or deconstruct uh, parts of organisms. So Doug took it upon himself, without telling the rest of us, to actually try and build one of the floppy simulated robots that he'd seen on the Zoom call. And so Doug came on uh, Zoom the following week, and he showed us a video of what he had made. And there was, you know, as you can imagine, complete silence on the call. From our side, we had no idea that this was even possible. But the fact that Doug could start to make out of cells something that we had created in simulation, a yeah. simulated robot, that was it. That was the beginning. And then from there, the xenobots weren't uh, far away.
0: God, that's cool. But so, so why why the frog cells? You just had access to those through your collaborator's work? or
1: Yeah, good question. Um, so frogs are a good place to start. Again, coming back to this idea of developmental plasticity, uh, Mike and Doug and others and their team and, and a lot of other uh, biologists have a lot of experience working with, uh, with frog tissues. And as I mentioned with the example of the tadpole with the eye on its back, um, frogs tend to be particularly accommodating to tissue rearrangements or Mm -hmm. cellular rearrangements. So those two things together, the lab had a lot of experience working with this particular animal, and this animal is accommodating of changes, made it an ideal candidate for the xenobots. But as you can probably imagine, uh, we have plans to move beyond frogs and, and see if this works with other species
0: as well hmm And from what I've read, you're using skin cells and, and muscle cells. Why, why that choice?
1: Yep. Good, good question. So to start out with, we started simple. We chose just those two cell types, skin, uh, skin cells and heart muscle cells. So heart muscle cells, as you can probably imagine, uh, like in our hearts, um, they're cells that increase and decrease their volume. So they sort of increase and decrease in size. You put a whole bunch of heart muscle cells together in the right way, you get a frog heart or a human heart. And it pumps blood in and out. It turns out that you can take heart muscle cells and rearrange them. And they will still increase and decrease in volume. But they won't necessarily synchronize together like they Mm -hmm. do when they're in the shape of a heart, which is what you want them to do. So from a roboticist point of view, they're like tiny pistons. Mm -hmm. But they're not necessarily pistons that we can control. They've got a mind of their own, their cells. They're going to do their Mm -hmm. own thing. And so this made for a very difficult design problem. How do you take skin, which was basically gonna be like the metal of a robot, it was gonna be the passive support material, the skeleton of the robot, if you like. And then we had access to heart muscle cells, which were gonna be the pistons of their motors, which were gonna drive motion. What we wanted was to design a xenobot that would move in a straight line along the bottom of a Petri dish. Again, not a difficult task, but if you think about it, how do, you, how do you take these random motors and combine mm-hmm. them so you get non-random motion? You get straightforward uh, walking. No human engineer yet has been able to solve this problem. Um, I've thrown this problem out to my grad students. No one's been able to solve it. It's very, very non-intuitive. Mm-hmm. So we took this design problem and we turned it over to an artificial intelligence method. So we combined an AI with a supercomputer. We told the AI what the building blocks were. We said, you got two Lego bricks you can work with, green and red. And here's the various properties that they have. The green ones, the skin ones, are they'll basically hold their shape. So they'll provide some structure and the red ones will increase and decrease in volume. We want you to find a way to put all these Lego bricks together. And you can have as many of them as you want to produce something that moves forward. So the AI said, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do. The AI starts up a physics engine. So this looks like a modern day first-person shooter video game, virtual world like Minecraft in that virtual world, the AI puts together skin and heart muscle cells at random, and then watches how this simulated Xenobot moves along the bottom of a simulated Petri dish. As you can imagine, these are initial random arrangements. They don't go anywhere. So the computer deletes, 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 the ones that move slowly, but a couple of them move a little bit away from their starting position. The AI takes those surviving designs, copies them, and when it copies them, it makes slight errors in Mm -hmm. where it puts the Lego bricks. As you can probably imagine from my description, this is a particular type of AI method known as an evolutionary algorithm. The computer is basically just evolving populations of simulated xenobots and, the, and those that survive are those that do a better job at whatever we ask them to do, which in this case is move forward.
0: How many generations do you go?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, So, we're very lucky here at the University of Vermont to have a very high powered uh, supercomputer. Um, Ironically, it's called Deep Green, which seemed perfect for designing simulated frog bots. So, that was nice. (laughs) Um, So, uh, this process ran for a couple of thousand generations. So, we had a population uh, at any one time of about 50. Xenobots and some of them would live and some of them would die and some of them would produce offspring and we would repeat this process generation after generation a few thousand times which took about a week on our current supercomputer so this is a pretty computationally intensive task takes a lot of number crunching to do it. But the algorithm itself that I just described to you, as you can imagine, it's pretty simple. It's only about a dozen lines of code. Mm-hmm. The, the simulator, the, the world in which the Xenobots live, that's a much more complex piece of code, but but conceptually, this is a pretty simple mm-hmm. process.
0: Which is nice from trying to explain this to people outside of your field, I suppose, and also to join different people from different fields.
1: Exactly, so interdisciplinary work, working across you know scientific boundaries is always really, really tough. Um, We had a bit of an advantage in this case, again, because it was a conceptually simple idea. We know from the biology side that we can rearrange frog tissues into things that aren't frogs, strictly speaking. We explain that to the AI and eventually it it sends back a blueprint and says, try this, try this tissue rearrangement and let me know whether it works.
0: So in, in terms of, okay, so you, you simulate these things and then you, I'm going to ask you how more precisely you build these in a second, sure. but once you've built them and, and you've got the real thing there, do they actually behave like the simulation in, in practice or are you finding all sorts of crazy emergent Behavior that you didn't expect, or yeah,
1: great question. So what you're describing is known in robotics as the sim to real problem. so mm-hmm. we can design you know arbitrarily complex machines in simulation, and they could be things other than xenobots. they could be next generation drones or autonomous cars or whatever complex machine it is and no matter how sophisticated our mathematical modeling is or our simulators are, when we go and actually try and build this in reality, it often doesn't work as expected. We all have experience with this, right? You have a great idea, you can see it perfectly in your head about how it's gonna play out. You sit down to code it, paint it, build it, you know, execute it and your optimism uh, comes up against the real world. The AI has a similar problem. So in answer to your question, the majority of the Xenobots do not, cra- do not cross the sim-to-real gap. They fail to do in reality what you would expect. Mm-hmm. But a surprising number from our perspective actually did manage to cross the gap. And part of the reason why is that we're building these robots out of cells and cells have 3.5 billion years of experience mm-hmm. of dealing with surprising situations right? So if you, you build a traditional robot out of metal and ceramics and plastics, each of those building blocks are dumb materials. They're, they're not alive. They just do what they do. and They often break and snap and resist what we want them to do. But if you build machines out of living systems, they will often give you extra momentum. They will help, quote unquote, help with what you're trying to achieve because that's what cells are designed to do is to help uh, support the larger collective of which they're a part.
0: I see. So so th- there was a large amount of success uh, qu- crossing that gap. So the, and another thing I'm curious about, just when you're building these things in practice, w- how are you getting the cells? Are you growing those cells somehow? Are you taking them from a living frog? Well, yeah. What's the process there?
1: Great question. So I can tell you a little bit about how uh, our Tufts colleagues uh, accomplish this. I'm not a biologist myself, so I'm speaking a little bit out of school here, but I'll give you the, uh, a summary of what happens. So the, um, Doug, who's our microsurgeon, takes uh, the, the eggs from a female Xenopus laevis. So uh, a female African clod frog will lay tens of thousands of cells throughout her lifetime. So we borrow a few. Doug removes uh, about 20,000 cells from one part of the egg. um, And those cells are destined to become either skin cells or heart muscle cells. So they're not quite stem cells. They're not totem potent but they still are, they're open to suggestion. You can push them towards becoming skin or becoming heart muscle cells. Doug then uh, takes all the cells apart. So they're all dissociated in the dish. So he's got about several thousand jigsaw pieces or Lego bricks now lying in the bottom uh, of a dish. And he's looking through uh, the Petri dish And cells don't like to be on their own. So they will jiggle and sort of move around a little bit. They're also sticky. So if they come Mm -hmm. into contact with their neighbors, they will stick and they will start to deform and left to their own devices, they will form back into a sphere of several thousand cells. Mm -hmm. As they are doing that, Doug is reaching in with micro forceps and a micro cauterization tool. So something that will burn away tissue. So at this point, he's acting kind of like a sculptor where he's removing tissue where the blueprint says there should be no tissue and ends up in the end with a three dimensional shape that matches the 3D shape that he obtained from the AI.
0: That sounds like really fiddly work. And the skin cells and muscle cells, they they like to stick to each other as well? Or you have to do something special? Yeah,
1: you got to do something special. Um, so there's different different sort of species of xenobots now. But the very first one, the one that we're talking about, was made up of skin and heart muscle. What Doug does in that case is to actually layer, as they're congealing back uh, into new pieces of tissue, he sort of layers them down. He puts down a layer of skin cells that connect to one another, a layer of heart muscle cells that connect to one another. So it's like building up a sandwich. He puts down layers, and then Mm -hmm. as he's layering it, he's also cutting away excess material. So as you mentioned, this is extremely fiddly work takes a lot of uh, fine motor skills to get this exactly right. And again, he can't build exactly down to the cell what was dictated in the blueprint. We can only get close. And this is part mm-hmm. of what was exciting from the research is that in some cases, that's all you need is to get close and you're able mm-hmm. to cross the sim to real gap because the cells are helping rather than hindering
0: you. Mm-hmm. Do you have problems where the you might have two different xenobots in the same petri dish? You're, I'm guessing they're in petri dishes, and then they move close to each other and then stick to each, you know, congeal into one large xenobot. Is that a problem you're dealing with?
1: Uh, well, it depends on your point of view. That could be a problem or it could be an opportunity to make. It's a make feature. S- it's a feature, exactly, right? It's not a bug, it's a feature. Um, it depends. So we reported again in this first paper, um, swarms of xenobots. So Doug actually made several and just put them in the dish because we wanted to see what would happen. And uh, I, can, I can tell you what we saw, which is, uh, as I mentioned, these xenobots tend to move forward. They don't move perfectly forward. They, they turn in spirals and corkscrews and, and, and sort of trace all these patterns in the bottom of the dish. From time to time, they will move and collide with one another but they have complex 3D shapes. So they have little nooks and crannies. So they will often jam together and get stuck for a moment. And they will turn around their collective center of mass. So sort of like a square dance uh, from Mm -hmm. Texas. They they move around one another. And then just because of random agitation or movement in uh, between the two of them, they'll break apart again and they'll head off in their own separate directions. So you get this temporary attachment and detachment kind of for free, which is Mm -hmm. interesting. Um, It's not something we know how to control yet, or we don't know how to describe it to the AI so that the AI could try and exploit Mm -hmm. that for swarm intelligence, but that's definitely on our to-do
0: list. Mm -hmm. So you've got sort of like this higher level of abstraction uh, going on in terms of emergent behavior that's interesting.
1: Absolutely, right? So you can abstract away from the details of different uh, cell types to the overall behavior and we can think about then asking an AI to exploit that and design a swarm that you know collects contaminants from the soil or the water mm-hmm. could we actually start to apply this to some real applications
0: Mm -hmm. so in term okay so in terms of in the petri dish itself what are the sorts of behaviors you're actually able to get so you mentioned moving forward is there anything more complicated you're seeing in some of the later iterations yeah
1: so um in a second paper which we published a few months ago we really focused on the collective behavior of these xenobots um and these are sort of xenobots 2.0 um in this case the xenobots do not walk along the bottom of the petri dish they swim and they swim by using very small cilia. These are microscopic hairs that grow up the side of skin cells. And they basically wave these, uh, these uh, cilia like whips and push themselves or generate propulsion in water. So now we have swimming xenobots, um, and that's the building blocks that the AI works with. We asked the AI in this case um, to build a swarm that would create, uh, that would basically clean up its workspace. So in this case, we littered the Petri dish with very, very small glass beads. So the beads are now 1 100th the size of a xenobot. There's a whole bunch of them in the dish. And what you observe is with the swarm, they move about and they will push these beads together and they will gradually push these beads into piles and quote unquote, clean up their their dish. (laughs) And it turns out that the AI can discover xenobots that do a better job of cleaning than if we just sort of make one based on our own intuition. Mm -hmm.
0: I see. So, and, and then long term, what are the, so this is, so that's sort of like a task uh, for a paper, but long term, what, sure. what are you hoping to do?
1: Yeah, good good question. Um, hard to say what the long term, you know, impacts of new technologies are going to be. If, if you'd ask the inventors of the internet, you know, to predict, mm-hmm. you know, whatever app is on your phone at the moment, it's it's impossible to say. Uh, the pile making behavior is kind of suggestive of at least some like broad classes of applications. Um, one could be environmental remediation. Um, there's no good way at the moment to collect micro uh, plastics from waterways as we all know unfortunately. Could you create very large swarms of these machines that could find and collect micro particles or microplastics that could be scooped up by a boat or a drone or something else? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're sort of thinking about very, very small sheepdogs. Go, see, find, collect, bring back. Um, it looks like that's, that's on the horizon. That may be possible. That's, that's one class of applications. The other one, which is longer term, is medical applications. So uh, as I mentioned, the xenobots are made from frog cells, but it may become possible that we can build these uh, machines from human cells. If we can accomplish that, you could imagine building a biological robot from a human patient's own cells. That that patient could ingest or swallow uh, that small machine and it would not trigger an immune response because from the patient's body, it is the the human patient. You could imagine trying to design these biobots to deliver small amounts of medication to various parts in the body, to do non-invasive surgeries, um, to scrape plaque from arteries, chase down cancer cells and blood, uh, blood vessels. It's science fiction at the moment, but again, it's, it's at least a direction for us to, to head in because with these machines, they are at the moment the only known 100% uh, biodegradable and biocompatible mm-hmm. machines we have at that size scale.
0: So how, how long do they last then if they're biodegraded what, do you get like a day out of them? Do you get a few out
1: you get a you get a week out of xeno a week yep, so remember that these are taken from the frog eggs, and so uh, like all eggs, all mammalian eggs they have some each of these cells has some very small yolk inside um, mm-hmm. so they're basically they have their own energy source they have their own battery in each cell, and mm-hmm. each cell is slowly digesting uh, the yolk that stores that they have available. And so these Xenobots run for about a week and then they stop moving and they rot away like any dead tissue
0: would. Does the behavior degrade with time or is it sort of like pretty flat and then just one day they switch on?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that one. Um, We we normally look at the behavior in the first few days when they're doing their best to do what we ask them to do. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's a slow degradation or whether one day they just suddenly stop moving. It would be good to go back and have a look at the data.
0: That'd be nice to know in terms of applications. And I guess if you're going to be using human cells, then they're not going to have the yolk. (laughs) Correct.
1: Yeah. So what's the power source for biobots made out of human cells? There's like everything in science, there's a hundred questions every time we answer one of them.
0: And do they heal?
1: They do heal. This was another focus of our first paper. Um, Doug, our uh, microsurgeon again, reached in and cut one of the xenobots almost in half. And so you get something that looks like a Pac-Man. You have this round thing with this sort of open wound in it, and over a few hours, it will actually uh, seal back up again, and uh, and continue moving. So, again, most these xenobots are mostly made of skin cells, which luckily, like our skin, is pretty good about wound healing and and scar tissueing after. After damage. So, these machines, unlike our laptops and phones and autonomous cars and drones, if you cut them almost in half, that machine is not coming back again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, another advantage of building things out of biological materials, where the components of the machine themselves are also smart machines.
0: Mm-hmm. It, so, it sounds like, you know, th- it sounds like these are a new life form, but where the replication process has been externalized. So, you know, if, if, if to your manufacturing process, I suppose if that was internalized, then you'd have a synthetic life form. What distinguishes Xenobots from synthetic life, I suppose, is this, are, are you planning eventually on building replication into these things or, or are these really robotic from your point of view?
1: Yeah, so there's the replication question, which you just mentioned. And then there's the question of, Are these life forms? And if they're not life forms, what more do we need to put in for them to qualify as life forms? So I'll start with the replication question. That one's a little easier. Um, So this is obviously something we're looking into. Um, It could be replication, but it could be external replication, but automated replication. As I mentioned, it takes Doug several hours to make one millimeter sized robot. This is, you know, this is organic, 100 percent, you know, handmade artisanal robotics. This Uh. is not (laughs) scalable. It's not scalable in any way. Um, it was obviously just a proof of concept that it could be done. So at mm-hmm. the moment, the, the, a, the Xenobot pipeline, the design is automated with the AI running on the supercomputer designing the Xenobots, but manufacture is still very manual. So we're looking at how, ways to automate manufacture, which again, is an engineering robotics perspective. And there's multiple options available. As you mentioned, we could internalize automation by getting them to replicate and then there'll just be more of them on their own as long as we supply them with whatever raw materials they need. <laughs> um, we could uh, make use of bioprinters. So these are 3D printers that print you know, clusters of cells. So we could make a machine that builds Xenobots automatically. We could combine self-replicating Xenobots with bioprinters. There's lots of ways we could There's lots of ways we could scale up deploying larger and larger numbers of Xenobots which for most people, as you can imagine, uh, brings us directly to the ethical questions, which we could circle back to. But I I want to circle
0: back to them after the I'm interested in the technical things for now, if if we can stay because I realize we've got a a limited time. Sure. And I've got so many questions I want to ask you.
1: So you asked about are these living, uh, living, you know, living machines or are these actually organisms? And. Uh, as you can imagine there was a lot of interest on Twitter and social media and and the popular press when we published this first paper and and there were some fascinating conversations between experts and non-experts alike on are these organisms are they robots are they something different From my perspective again I have no idea they they're made from living tissues they don't look any they don't look and act anything like naturally evolved organisms to me it mm-hmm. feels like a new class of uh, animate material that we need to devise. Mm-hmm. And this is part of what I love about robotics and AI and artificial life, a sister field to AI, is that a lot of what happens in these fields challenges us to reconsider. It, it sort of knocks the struts out from under our you know, pre mm-hmm. assumptions about what is life? What is intelligence? What is consciousness? What is agency? What is collective mm-hmm. intelligence? some of us feel we have a good handle on what these things are, but you just need to look at a Xenobot and, and a lot of those basic assumptions feel a Mm -hmm. little bit more shaky.
0: Blurring the lines. I I guess then an obvious thing to start uh, asking about is can you add in uh, neurons or uh, some sort of sensors, you know, eye cells or this sort of thing so that you can have Xenobots that respond in some sort of intelligent way to external uh, event. Have you looked in, are you planning on going down this line? Or? Yes,
1: so that's definitely near the top of the to-do list. It's a very long list at the moment, as you can imagine, but adding in sensory organs or sens- sense uh, cells are definitely at the top of the list. We have power source, we have quote unquote motors, but we're missing the sensor mm-hmm. piece. Um, In this most recent paper, we showed that you can actually genetically manipulate the xenobots so that if they come in contact with a particular wavelength of light, in this case it was blue, the xenobots turn from green to red and stay red. So they can at least report back if you capture these xenobots again, you count the number of xenobots that are red, they are quote unquote telling you that they came into the presence of blue light. So there's mm-hmm. a little bit of sensation and memory, um, not in the traditional sense of this. It would be great to add in some photoreceptive cells and, and, and eyes and, and skin and all sorts of things. Um, and then you mentioned neurons, right? So we deliberately held off on neurons because we'd like to see how smart we can get the xenobots to behave without Mm -hmm. nerve cells as
0: dumb bots. Exactly.
1: Again, you know, it Mm -hmm. challenges our thinking as smart as a smart species that relies mostly on our brains. We tend to think intelligence is equal to brain material. Mm -hmm. But Mike Levin, my colleague is actually well known for what's known as protocognition. He's been Mm -hmm. able to demonstrate that organisms, plants and animals and microorganisms can do what what humans would consider planning or thinking ahead, uh, theory of mind, reasoning about other organisms, they do it all without any neurons whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So I think the xenobots are again a new tool in our tool set to question what do we actually mean by intelligence?
0: I think also when you have an engineering problem, then it's going to, f- you know, I want this uh, organ- xenobot to behave in a certain way. It forces you to actually think about realistic ways of generating intelligence. Absolutely. And do, do you see this as sort of a as a potential path to developing embodied general artificial intelligence? as as sort of a general tool in that direction in our toolbox?
1: I absolutely do. And this is sort of my, the research focus of my lab on this idea of embodied cognition and making machines that are able to act intelligently because they have a body. This is a, a huge, open, philosophical, psychological, AI question. Um, and I think, again, the xenobots are sort of a surprising angle to attack this question. How far how how much can we get the xenobots to do without brains? First question. Second question is if we do need to eventually bring in neurons and synapses, what is it that we need to bring them in to do? What are non-neural machines or organisms incapable of for which mm-hmm. they need brains?
0: One one question that I'm really curious about is, you know, if someone asked you to conceptualize what a five-dimensional space or a 17 dimensional space looks like it's impossible we can't do it we, we, we haven't evolved it, whoever says that they can uh, conceptualize 17 dimensions is lying to you okay. I, I and I, I this has to do with the fact that our bodies we, we, we don't experience 17 dimensions so we're not equipped you know we don't we don't have the machinery to deal with this these sort of environments I'm wondering. Is it possible to even have intelligence without embodiment in a physical instantiation? Like, can you have a, s- a separated brain or do you, do you need to go through sort of this process of having a body or having a simulated environment for that intelligence to exist in?
1: Yeah, I think um, at heart, the brain and body are so intimately intertwined that you cannot think of them separately. And this is part of what those working in embodied cognition have been arguing for, for decades now. And there are these new, you know, new technologies like the Xenobots that are now exemplars of this idea, that brain and body and intelligence and planning, you know, they're not as separate as we tend to think they are. Um, You mentioned, you know, thinking in higher dimensions. It seems like a very abstract, you know, idea, something that's divorced from the body. With my students, we play this game about embodied cognition and we say, well, OK, maybe 17 dimensions is hard, but let's try four. I want you to imagine a cube, which is three dimensions. I want you to, in your mind, grasp that cube with your, an imagined hand, push it to the side, and make another cube. Take a string with two imagined hands and connect two points in those two cubes with this string. So by manipulating abstract concepts in your mind, you can start to go from something that you're familiar with, three dimensions, and at least dip your toe into higher dimensions. It's still difficult, but the point I try and make with my students is to pay attention to what we're doing. We're manipulating three dimensions and trying to stretch or push it into four dimensions. All of the verbs in that sentence, manipulate, stretch, push, those are directly tied to our body. When you hear those words or you say those words, the motor strip, the part of your brain that's responsible for controlling your hands and fingers, that part of your brain lights up. Your brain mm-hmm. is helping you when you think about abstract concepts like four dimensions. The body is there, you might just not be aware of it.
0: Mm-hmm. I, the reason why I, I think this question is interesting is because you know it might be the case that one day we're able to generate artificial intelligences And we can simulate environments for them. So maybe we can simulate a 17-dimensional environment that they can have experience with and touch and feel in their own sort of internal way. And then we can ask them, you know, to think about questions that we're incapable of thinking about and maybe make headway into, you know, theoretical physics questions that we just aren't capable of conceptualizing or...
1: Absolutely. I think that's, that's... Yeah, no, this is a good point. I mean, our bodies are incredibly useful. They've allowed us to, you know, they're, they're the, the foundation stone for mathematics and poetry and, and, you know, abstract concepts. But as we're discovering as a species, maybe we have some limitations. We can only go so far into those very abstract spaces, right? How do you get 7 billion individuals to cooperate most of the time? This is a pretty hard problem for us to solve. But maybe, you know, machines or or human machine hybrids, we might, you know, with different bodies or different collectives of bodies may be able to use a different foundation stone, a different body, a different embodiment to reach differently into more abstract spaces and, you know, fish out answers to questions that we with our limited human bodies are not able to.
0: I've really kicked the conversation away from the starting point of what is a Xenobot, but sure. <laughs> can we, actually now it's probably a good time to circle back okay. and ask about the moral implications. So sure. when, when you're actually constructing these things, mm-hmm. do you, uh, for example, do you have to deal with the cells as though they're a frog, for example, you know, since you take them from what, what are the current yes. uh, laws and do you think laws will be brought in to deal with the more complex Uh, constructions that you can come up with? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So um, that research here in the United States is covered by very strict and very comprehensive animal welfare laws. And so absolutely, the xenobots are considered frogs from a regulatory viewpoint, which I think is a good place to start. They, They definitely are taken from an animal. They possibly are an animal. We don't have if we don't have a good answer to that question, we might as well as assume that they are for now. Um, And hopefully, again, some of this research might drive our thinking about uh, regulation and and how to regulate this and related technologies as we move forward. You can look at brain-computer interaction where you have a, a person who's very intimately connected and surgically connected with their smartphone mm-hmm. or a prosthetic. You know, there, there are these, these new kinds of technologies that completely explode our preconceptions about you know, what is a thinking, feeling organism and how should we go about protecting it? So in the same way that xenobots are kind of driving our philosophical thoughts about what it means to be intelligent or embodied, it's also, I hope, driving you know, us to think about this from a legal, ethical, regulatory standpoint.
0: Mm -hmm. But has has the discussion actually opened up? Have people approached you about these questions uh, where you've had to respond in in any?
1: Yep, uh, absolutely. So we're already in discussion with the Food and Drug Administration or the FDA here in the United States. Um, I mentioned the medical applications. You know, if we could, from a technological point of view, if we could create a biobot made from human cells that you could swallow and deliver drugs inside the human Mm -hmm. body, how would you go about regulating such a technology? Um, Hats off to the FDA for sort of trying to get into the conversation early. And again, I think these applications are many years away, so we have some time, um, and we should should make judicious use of that time. We should really think through what it means um, from the Xenobot's point of view, is the Xenobot suffering, and if, it's something that's ingested. Is there any potential for for human uh, suffering as well?
0: One of the applications you mentioned uh, earlier was clearing cholesterol. Well, cholesterol, sorry, yes. from um things. I'm just thinking. You know, one millimeter is actually still quite large, yes, right? Yeah, absolutely. So. so so, if you wanted to look at applications like that, and you want to add additional complexity, so you want this thing to think, or you want—I guess you could go the the dumb bot route. But if you if you wanted to build something that had more complex structure, yeah. do, do you do you think you sh- you will be able to do that in, in smaller than one millimeter? Is is one millimeter just the sort of is the limitation there? Just that you're doing everything by hand, and you've got these artisan xenobots? Do you? Does it look like you're, you're gonna be able to go smaller once you automate the system or what's the what status there? Uh, again,
1: I'm not a biologist, so um, please take what I say with a grain of salt, but I, I definitely think we can go smaller than millimeter scale. The question is, you know, we need to go small enough that we could be able to navigate very small capillaries. And, and again, this may be sort of the last application, you know, maybe years or decades away how few cells can you rearrange and those cells will still cooperate with one another? The the Mm -hmm. more cells that we have, the more they can sort of rearrange into something that's vaguely familiar from their point of view. But the fewer Mm -hmm. and fewer you have, obviously it may be that options are limited, but -hmm. but this is just speculation at the moment. Um, It would be fun to tell the AI, make a xenobot or a biobot made from human cells, Design such a machine that's as small as possible, that can navigate Mm -hmm. something that's this diameter, but is still smart enough to not cause a blockage, to remove plaque, but not remove anything else. It's a challenging problem, but I think it's definitely something we're going to focus on uh, in the years to come.
0: I suppose it's quite a difficult question because the more cells you have, the more, I guess, degrees of freedom you have to, to fit whatever behavior you want. So so the simpler things are, I suppose, the more simple the behavior has to be uh, sort of just as an, it doesn't seem like there must be some uh, limit, obviously, at the, the complexity of behavior if you limit the number of cells there, to there, just a few. Yes,
1: there's probably a limit. But again, you know, this might be our multicellular chauvinism showing. Um, that there are single-celled organisms that are extremely intelligent and adaptive Mm -hmm. and can crawl in and out of very small apertures. You know, there may be a lot of potential at the, you know, the few or the single cellular level. Mm -hmm. Assuming we can develop technology where now the AI is not manipulating bunches of cells, but bunches of things inside a single cell. So if we could get to subcellular reassembly, who knows, it may be possible.
0: I guess also you mentioned you had these cilia. They're smaller than a cell, right? Correct. And, and That's so, right. They're
1: very small hairs. Yeah.
0: I see. I see. Okay. So that actually, okay. Uh, well, bearing in mind that we have to cut off in a few minutes, can I ask you, what's the future from here? So where, where are you aiming for now? What, what's, the, what's the goal on the horizon that, that you're aiming towards? So
1: my goal is to push into um, new kinds of minds. So we've been talking about xenobots, single cellular organisms, naturally occurring organisms, you know, brain-computer interactions, cyborgs. The future is not going to be, you know, us humans and the Terminator. It's going to be some, you know, very complex zoo of, you know, large and small creatures you know, up from humans with intelligent prosthetics down to AI designed single cellular organisms. There's gonna be this vast zoo of creatures that are complex admixtures of natural and artificial materials and and methods. And Mm -hmm. across that zoo, you know, some are gonna act intelligently, some are gonna make, you know, horrendous mistakes, and we're gonna try and understand after the fact why. I think taken together, that that zoo will give us a much better understanding of what intelligence can be in general rather than what human intelligence is, right? If we consider human intelligence or you know, animal intelligence, we have one instance of intelligence on this planet to study. And as any scientist knows, an N equals one is not you know, a great place to be. Can we create an N equals two An N equals 10 can we, de- can we look across this spectrum of machines and really try and re-answer some of these deep questions that philosophers have been asking for thousands of years? What is thought? What is intelligence? What is agency? Uh, mm-hmm. What is life? I think that's, that's the future uh, for xenobots and related technologies.
0: Escaped sapiens